Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Best ass podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, now for the show. It must have felt like a dream. Wendell Scott, the first black driver in NASCAR's Grand National Division, was racing around Speedway Park in Jacksonville, Florida in first place, laps ahead of any other racer. Scott had broken the sport's color barrier and reached NASCAR's top level. Now, he was about to win his first race. But when he looked up at the leaderboard, where Wendell Scott, number 34, should have been, the board was blank. When Wendell crossed the finish line, instead of waving a checkered flag, the official in the tower stood motionless. The dream was now a nightmare. Even though Wendell was winning the race, he couldn't seem to finish it. It was almost like he didn't exist at all. Another driver crossed the finish line instead, and the checkered flag waved, confirming Wendell's erasure from the scene. Euphoria melted into confusion, frustration, and anger. But this wasn't a dream or a nightmare. It was Wendell Scott's real life. That's dirty, man. They did him dirty. Yeah, and we'll dirty. get into that later in this episode. Uh, welcome back, everyone, to Past Gas. I am your host, Nolan Sykes, along with my co-hosts, as always, one Mr. Joe Weber. Uh, fired up. <laughs> and James Pumphrey. More power, baby! <laughs> uh, how, how you guys doing? More power, baby! <laughs> That's my catchphrase, baby. You buy it on a shirt. <laughs> Stickers. 
That's right. I, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking, Nolan. You're, you're welcome. It's been a I'm long time too. since I've talked to you, Joe. So I just had to check in with you and just make sure that nothing drastic has changed within the last 28 minutes. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I washed my shirt and I threw it in the dryer really quick on the break. So I got a nice clean shirt. Nice. Took a shower. I ate a meal. Whoa. All during that, really? No. Oh. <laughs> well, like I said, it's part two of Wendell Scott, uh, one of the first black men in NASCAR. As we saw last, yeah, uh, last episode, we saw him go from moonshine runner to a uh, professional racer. And now we're going to see him in the top level of NASCAR and uh, some of the triumphs and tribulations of his career. Uh, so without further ado, are you guys, are you guys ready? Moonshine Runner sounds like a video game. Yeah, we should we should have like a some IP for that. Yeah, Moonshine Runner is a video game that I would play. I, would you pay, <laughs> play uh, Desert Truck or whatever it's called? There's a Sega game where you drive a desert a truck in the desert for eight hours from like Salt Lake City to to Phoenix. Really? And you. You can't pause it. <laughs> it's oh, eight that's, hours. That's the bus game. Oh, Desert the bus, bus. Desert bus. Yeah. yeah. It was Pendulette, right? Or something like that? Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, that's a comp. That's a, that used to be a pretty common like charity stream game. Oh, Because cool. you can't pause or anything like that. You just got to drive it for eight hours. <laughs> we should do that. We should do that. We should. Yeah. yeah. Write that down. Um, speaking of video games, Nolan and I are... In a video game, Dirt 5, that comes out Ooh, in October. segue. On all consoles, current and future gen, as well as PC. We're very excited. We do a version of this podcast. For some reason, Joe's not in it. Um, <laughs> hey, I'm cool with that. I, uh, <laughs> I, I I coded a little bit for that game. Oh, so okay, I'm, cool, cool. So you're <laughs> My name's on the back end, yeah. Yeah, um, but Dolan and I kind of guide you through the career mode. Um, we're really, really excited and, uh, can't wait to play yeah. that with you guys. We'll figure out some That's sort of right. live event where we can play together. I'll be on there. My Xbox games handle is, uh, Jason's dad, 1975. <laughs> <laughs> I love my son, Jason. <laughs> yeah, we were, we recorded some sessions with, uh, uh, renowned voice actors uh nolan north and troy baker nolan north was actually in my dream last night with which i just remembered Whoa. is this yeah. safe for work should we warn the yeah. people to cover <laughs> the kids like, ears earmuffs it's buddy. safe for work yeah <laughs> just nolan on nolan just getting okay. sweaty just greasing each other up just greasing, <laughs> just greasing their nuts greasy yeah greasing their knuckles up on each oh, other oh boy Okay, let's get oh, into it. It's like in a call me by your call me by your name. I've <laughs> not like, seen hey, that. Nolan. So they're just like Nolan, Nolan, Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that's enough. Uh, <laughs> Wendell Scott was nearly forty years old by the time he made it to the NASCAR Grand National, the top tier of the league that's now known as the Cup Series. In that time, Wendell had gone from serving in World War II as a mechanic to running bootleg moonshine all over Georgia in a souped-up 1944 coupe to racing stock cars throughout the 1950s. First in a semi-professional league known as the Dixie Circuit, then in the lower divisions of NASCAR. 
1961 would be Scott's rookie year in the Grand National. NASCAR at the time was in a state of transition. It was moving away from its humble hillbilly and moonshine running origins, where races were typically on half-mile clay and dirt tracks, and moving increasingly to so-called super speedways in Darlington, Daytona, Charlotte, and Atlanta, with sharply banked corners and seating for thousands of fans. The man behind the push for modernization was Bill France, the powerful businessman who owned NASCAR. It wasn't just the tracks that were changing, the cars were evolving too. In NASCAR's early days, it was common for drivers to race older cars that they had been working on for years, but now, newer models were advancing so rapidly that an older car was simply not competitive. NASCAR had less and less room for working class hobbyists, now you needed money to compete. In 1947, Jackie Robinson went to bat for the Brooklyn Dodgers, breaking the so-called color barrier in the most American sport of them all, baseball. I would actually argue that oval racing is the most American sport, but that's a discussion for another time. Nah, dude. Baseball was around for 100 years before freaking cars. Didn't it come from uh, other countries, though? No, nah, there's a... If you want to watch Ken Burns' baseball... Uh, it's way too long, but it started as like a bastardization of an English game called like rounds or something. Um, but it's not at all really related to any other sport. Most American sport ever. Most American sport ever is arm race, arm wrestling, arm racing, (laughs) racing. ready, set, go tie, ready, set, go tie. There's a lot of shoulder injuries in that sport, huh? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Most American sport ever is the right to vote. Get out there in November. Exercise your sports. (laughs) It's called exercise your right to vote. So it's a sport. Keep keep talking about cars, dude. We don't want to hear about your politics. When you just talk about cars. Why don't you just talk about cars so I can watch it for free and shut the fuck up? I come here to escape politics. How dare you? (laughs) Please, just I want everything to be normal. Well, turns out normal is fucked up, man. (laughs) (laughs) I want it to be normal for everybody. Shut up and talk about the cars. Just yell at me about the cars. (laughs) (laughs) That's our life. It's my Welcome life. to our life. Oh, yeah. Back in baseball, uh, the crowd that gathered to watch at Ebbets Field was 26,000 strong, with 14,000 of those fans being black. Robinson's debut was headline news all over the world and made him one of the most legendary names in American sports. But unlike Jackie Robinson, Scott's debut in the Grand National received no press at all. Spectators were largely unaware of the history being made. Grudging acceptance was the best that Scott could expect from NASCAR's management, who would prefer that as few of their white, blue-collar fans knew of Wendell's admittance as possible. Wendell's early days in the Grand National got off to a bumpy start. Wendell was racing a used Chevy he'd bought at a discount from a driver named Buck Baker. A month into racing at an event in Columbia, South Carolina, the Chevy literally snapped in half behind the rear axle. On inspecting the frame, Scott saw that he'd been sold a previously sliced-in-half lemon. It was clear that the frame had split and been hastily patched together before Scott had bought the car. 
Baker had conveniently omitted this when he sold the car to Scott and Carfax wasn't a thing back then. So you kind of took people's words for it. It's kind of like when I bought my car and then the kid came by to drop off a door that he had for it. And he was like, oh, yeah, um, it needs the rear main seal replaced. It's like, oh, <laughs> cool, man. I mean, like that's no one was there. I was. Uh, I heard it. Uh, looks like we're it taking the transmission out of my car uh, <laughs> in the next couple weeks. Um, so still still happens. However, Baker was white. Scott was black. Just like on race day when white drivers would sometimes run him off track, Scott couldn't retaliate. Instead, he took two races off to literally put the pieces of his car back together. Ugh. The struggle continued as Scott traveled to Charlotte Motor Speedway to try and qualify for his first super speedway race. There, he encountered Norris Friel, the chief of technical inspections for NASCAR. As Scott tried to enter the track to register, Friel flagged him down. Apparently, physical appearance of scott's chevy was not up to nascar standards curious wendell checked the pit area there were plenty of drivers with cars that looked just as beat up as his scott suspected that it was less about his car's appearance than his own not for the first time wendell spent a race day driving back to danville dejected bullshit man so scott took a break from super speedway events and focused on small track races as the season went on he consistently placed in the top 10 building confidence in learning his way around his grand national car which was heavier and more powerful than he'd been drive than the one he'd been driving in the lower divisions of nascar encouraged wendell decided to give the super speedways another shot he set his sights on the southern 500 raced at darlington darlington the southern 500 lived up to its name the president of the track was bob colvin an avowed segregationist and fan of the confederacy the infield was a huge party with country music and plenty of drinking everywhere were Confederate flags, which they just banned this year, yeah. which everyone's patting them on the back about, but that's insane um, that it took this long. Can you imagine just going to a basketball game and people are just like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> go Pelicans. <laughs> I mean, it, it like I just want to clock that NASCAR is the only sport with one black athlete like that's absurd in fact darlington actually flew the confederate flag to start the southern 500 instead of the traditional green flag even for a league that typically embraced white southern heritage the southern 500 was on another level <laughs> even to attend the event as a black man would have been hugely intimidating not to mention dangerous for wendell scott to even apply to race in the southern took enormous balls that must have been challenging for scott to fit into his chevy <laughs> yeah, they, they weighed his car down, you know, they acted as a ballast, put more grip um, on them I tires. do have to say, you need small balls to drive the Shiro because the gas pedal and the brake pedal are like very close. Oh, that's right. You got a new car too, Joe, didn't you? Yeah, it's so fun, but it is just like I get out and I my balls just like go back to normal. I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> you ever like just be sitting there and you'd be like oh man i have to poop but then you're like oh no my legs are just too tight on my balls no <laughs> what? what what is that <laughs> no because oh, it's like yeah like, I... you're, like you're driving or something and you're just like why am i agitated and my tummy kind of hurts and it's like oh my i'm crushing my balls oh, oh i my have done God. that Okay, I don't that feel makes like more sense. I, I was, yeah, 
I was I don't ever equate it with James. like the the desire to poop though. Like <laughs> yeah, I feel no. like I was like, you gotta see a doctor if those are the same <laughs> sensations. So yeah, we uh Scott's big balls didn't uh fit in the Chevy. Uh but balls weren't <laughs> enough. Bob Colvin denied Wendell's application, and Bill France, the president of NASCAR, who had previously promised Wendell that he would be treated like any other NASCAR driver, was silent on the issue. For France, this was business. Why take a stand and risk alienating one of the most powerful track owners in the sport? Hmm. I don't... Not a good look. However, okay, like, look. This was a, this was a long time ago. I don't want it to make it sound like the current France's, um, I don't know, you know, sins of the father, that whole thing. We can say that it was bad that he stayed silent when promising Wendell that before. Like, I think we're dealing with that still today. A lot of people being silent on the issue when they have a platform, but I think that is like an issue too. Like people just don't want to like stir the pot and a lot of it has to do with money, but I think it's a little bit cowardly. Yeah. I can see if it was like multiple drivers, he'd probably have to address it, but it was like the first one and, and he like, I don't know. It's just a power situation. Like, yeah. Like you're saying, we lost a bunch of subscribers and I lost a bunch of Instagram followers. Um, I don't know if we really lost a bunch. I mean, we lost quite subscribers. A few. You shouldn't be afraid to say what's right. Like, I'm not anymore. Like, I, 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 you know, I look back at myself from like a year ago. It's like, why were you afraid, quote, afraid of like saying anything? And it's like, you know, if you, if you say something that you believe is right and it is right and you lose like a few people and you get a few dms from obviously racist people like i don't care i don't care if i lose them i don't care if they stop supporting what i'm doing because that's not the kind of person i want in my fan base anyway yeah so if it's just a number if it's like you're worried about the numbers whatever it's just yeah that's another thing it's like why are you caring about a a freaking number on some bullshit (laughs) app you know uh, like Instagram or whatever, like that's just shameful in my opinion anyway. And I, I you know, I want to make up for that fact. You don't owe it to anyone to conform to anyone's ideals. So it's like, you're not, you're not a character. You're like a real person that has an Instagram account totally, and can say yeah, whatever yeah. you want it. Yeah. That's why I get pissed when people tell me to like, oh, you better not say anything. You better stick to cars. It's like, dude, first of all, I don't even know that much about cars in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) So you shouldn't be listening to that. (laughs) I like cars. I don't know a lot about them. (laughs) That's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's like, like, yeah, I really like cars, but man, you got to learn more. more. Yeah. (laughs) So that point is kind of moot in my opinion. And second of all, it's like, yeah, you know what? If I do have a platform, it would be stupid for me to not promote stuff. That's why, like, one of my favorite videos that we've ever done is it didn't do very well, but I'm so glad we did it. But was like when I slept in my car for that week and we like kind of yeah. talked about homelessness in LA. Like, that's one of my favorite videos because it's like, hey, we actually like, you know, tried to help this organization that was trying to solve that problem. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it. Yeah, it did a great job of bringing that issue to the forefront of like maybe people who weren't paying attention to it that our fans of our channel now know that it's a problem and 
I don't know if that's going to like dictate what they do in their life, but it's still like brought it up. And I think that's super important. In response, Wendell did what he always did. He kept racing. In October of 61, he had his best showing yet at Greenville Pickens Speedway. That's a name. Qualifying in second and finishing eighth. Looking back on the year, he turned in an exceptional rookie season with five top 10 finishes out of 23 starts. By points, Wendell had his best performance of any rookie in 1961. According to current NASCAR rules, he would have been awarded Rookie of the Year automatically. Wow. Good for him. And he's in his late 40s at this point? He's in his early 40s, yeah. Like, that's crazy. That's, yeah, I mean, that that's, crazy. Some, that's crazy, too. Yeah. Wasn't Ken Miles, like, 45 when he won Le Mans or something? Yeah, he was older. I mean, that's just how it was, like, back then. Like, they didn't have, like, the the drive there weren't like driver development programs or anything like that where kids were getting starting racing early like this was kind of a middle-aged guy sport at this time back then the award was given subjectively it was bill france's call to make instead of scott france chose a driver named woody wilson for the prize wilson that's a white guy for sure (laughs) (laughs) wilson had raced only five times that season with a single top 10 finish to his name explaining his position france said that he simply saw more potential in wilson's racing career if france was telling the truth he's a bad judge of drivers wilson dropped out of nascar the next season dumb In a lifetime of unfairness suffered by Wendell, this was a new low. Notably, Jackie Robinson had been awarded Major League Baseball's Rookie of the Year after his debut season 13 years ago in 1948. NASCAR was a much more hostile world than baseball. Woody Wilson was later asked if Wendell Scott deserved to have won instead of him, and Wilson recalled that Scott was, quote, a nice old boy. He stayed in his place. Back in them days, you'd hardly ever see an N-word racing. But Jesus he stayed Christ. in his place, and everybody accepted him. From a rookie Jeez. like Wilson all the way up to Bill France, this was the expectation they had of Wendell, that he would know his place and not challenge the racial hierarchy. In what would become a pattern for his entire career, Wendell's only response was to keep racing. That's just Nin- heartbreaking, man. I know, man. 1962 brought changes to NASCAR. It was the first year that car companies openly began sponsoring drivers. The sport was becoming big business. Now, Scott might have been equal to other drivers in skill, and he had a greater mechanical knowledge than perhaps any other driver in NASCAR, but it was getting harder and harder to keep up with the accompanying costs. Now, without a sponsor, Scott relied on his sons and his friends to pit for him. When they were unavailable, he'd crew for himself, jumping off, his, <laughs> jumping out of his car to change tires and to refuel by himself. That's then so climbing, badass. Yeah, then climbing back in and resuming the race. Not without a sense of humor, Scott painted mechanics me on the side <laughs> of his car. If he's going to do it all himself, he was at least going to take credit for it. That's so cool, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's, to- that's just so persistent, man. I love it. Uh, the top. Uh, go, sorry, going back to Pocono real quick. I just want to say Kevin Harvick won on Saturday. He is forty-four years old. Uh, yeah, which is kind of cool that people in their you know middle-aged drivers can still win, still can still be competitive in NASCAR. You know what that like means? That. You know what that means, Nolan? No, I've still got a shot. Oh yeah, True. I've still got a shot. Old guys got a shot. Um, I still I, got a shot. I, we'll say if it if there's any like. Uh, racing series to be an old guy and I think NASCAR is a good one because you don't need those like insane fast twitch muscles for 
that you need for like Formula One. You just kind of, I guess you do need good reaction speed. Oh, for in sure. Case there's you, a crash. You still need to be able to drive. And also, you're in a freaking oven for like four hours. That's another thing. I've started watching a lot more NASCAR. Yeah, but have lately. you ever been in a sauna? Old guys love saunas. Yeah, you ever that seen a true. sauna? There's old guys with no towels or shorts on. And no Always. shame. No shame. I would <laughs> No towel, no shame, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. The top stock car's edge was in the straightaways, where they could outpower Scott. Without the required horsepower, Scott knew that the smaller the track, the better the chance he had of a good result. As the 1962 season was underway, Scott continued to pick up top 10 finishes at the tracks that played to his strengths. A summer race at the Savannah Speedway in Georgia, shout out to Savannah, uh, gave Scott a taste of life at the top, but it was bittersweet. Savannah was a short clay track, perfect for Scott. For the first time, Wendell qualified on pole, stunning the crowd and his fellow racers. Between qualifying and the race, the mood in the pit was tense. In the pre-race meeting, one of the other drivers referred to Scott using the N-word, and another threatened to wreck Scott at the start of the race. The event was anticlimactic, as Scott had engine issues and finished in the middle of the pack. But the message was clear. A black driver was one thing, but a winning black driver was apparently a step too far. 
As Wendell continued in the sport, the financial and racial stresses only mounted. He developed stomach ulcers that were so bad, he was puking almost every day. Driving to races, he'd have to pull over to the side of the road until the pain had passed. And through the rest of his career, these ulcers would continue to haunt him. The psychological strain was clearly causing physical pain. Scott got so sick of the bullying by white drivers that he decided to take an extreme action. After Jack Smith purposely wrecked Scott at a race at Bozeman Gray, in the next race, Scott hid a pistol in his car, pulling it out during the pace laps and pointing it at Smith. Oh my God. (laughs) That's insane. It was a rare moment of confrontation for Scott, who typically kept his head down. Whatever his response, the insults and threats never stopped. For the second year, Scott was denied entry at Darlington. Jeez. On the bright side, the 62 season showed that Scott's strong rookie year hadn't been a fluke. He raced 41 times and garnered 19 top 10 finishes. He managed to place 15th of all the drivers, earning $11,000 in winnings, about 90000 in today's money. That's good money. However, money was increasingly concentrated on the bigger circuits where Wendell's underpowered car was still struggling. On those tracks, sponsored drivers' factory cars could drive an average of 15 to 20 miles an hour faster than Wendell. With, the yeah. sort, with that sort of discrepancy, Scott could have the race of his life and still finish in the middle of the pack. Wendell wanted to continue climbing the ranks, but clearly he needed a sponsorship to get there. For the 1963 season, Scott replaced his Chevy with another Chevy a 62 Impala that was again bought used from another driver. That's so was crazy the, that a 62 Impala like used to be a race car. I know, right? Those things are so big. It's awesome watching that vintage NASCAR footage cuz like there's mm-hmm. just these giant cars that look like your grandma used to drive, but they're going mm-hmm. almost 200 miles an hour. <laughs> My grandma used to drive a Cadillac Catera. And she would regularly drive 200 miles an hour. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's was, the, the caddy that zigs, right? Yeah, it was the caddy that zigs. Uh, yeah, so this Impala was the best car he'd owned to date, but it was still no match for the top of the field, which was increasingly dominated by Ford. By this time, Scott had clearly reached a plateau in his results, consistently in the top 10, but never on the podium. Just competing had been a victory for Wendell, but he was as competitive as any other driver. Deep down, he wanted to win, and three seasons into the Grand National, he had not yet won an event. For America, 1963 was a year of incredible highs and incredible lows. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech that summer. Wendell Scott, like every American at the time, must have heard it. It's tempting to imagine Wendell's reaction as MLK spoke to the quarter million people gathered saying, quote, I have a dream that one day On the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. Wendell was one of those Georgia sons, but the brotherhood he was trying to join had hardly welcomed him to the table. His seat was in constant danger of being snatched away. From MLK's mountain of oratory, the year descended into despair and violence. September brought the Birmingham church bombing killing four young African-American girls. And on November 22nd, JFK was shot dead in Dallas, Texas. Only eight days after the assassination of the president, Wendell Scott headed to one of the final Grand National races of the year in Jacksonville, Florida. It was an old-school, half-mile dirt track perfectly suited for Wendell, who at 41 years of age was getting to be pretty old-school himself. 
It was a crazy time in history to be racing, but for Wendell's whole life, he'd always been able to keep his eyes on the track. There's no reason to think this Sunday would be any different. In fact, Wendell's focus on the track made a crucial difference in the race. In qualifying, he noticed that the circuit was banged up, filled with ruts and potholes. Wendell ran a slow heat, putting him in the 15th spot out of 22 cars at the main event. But with the experience that came with decades of working on his own cars, Scott had a flash of mechanical genius. Before the race began, he decided to remove half of his car's shock absorbers, compensating for the rough road. I don't understand that. So, like, he made his suspension softer. I think he took the shot, the springs out of yeah. one side. Oh, okay. Because those things probably had those things had leaf springs in the back. I'm sure. Yeah, probably, probably. The race began and quickly descended into a chaotic mess. It only took six laps of the 200-lap race for the first driver to be eliminated with a broken axle. It's a rough trek. Two laps later, a second racer was out with engine trouble. Wendell, meanwhile, was in a whole new world, cruising on his magic carpet ride, allowing the other drivers to wear out their cars while he maintained a steady pace and floated easily over the rough track. At 100 laps, the halfway point, eight of the 22 cars were out of the race. As the race continued, Richard Petty ran in first place, while Scott settled into second. On a typical race day, that's likely where Scott would have stayed. But this was not a typical day. It was Scott's day. Like everyone else, the bumps took a toll on Petty's car, and he fell out of the lead with steering issues. Scott was in first place in a Grand National Division race, and because of his brilliant pre-race tactics, it seemed impossible for anyone to catch him. All he had to do was finish the race. It was one of those magical days on the track where nothing could go wrong. However, off the track, something was amiss. The track's leaderboard, which up until that point had been faithfully tracking the shifting positions of the drivers, had gone blank. On lap 200, Scott crossed the finish line. The official should have been waving the checkered flag, but nothing happened. Confused, Scott took another lap, and then another. Still, nothing. It was the nightmare from the opening of today's podcast. He was stuck in an endless race, in the lead, but unable to finish. At this point, Buck Baker, the driver in second, completed 200 laps. Suddenly, the checkered flag was out and waving for Baker. Inexplicably, Scott was awarded third place. The pit area was buzzing with confusion. Scott got out of his car and headed straight for Baker. Baker recalls Wendell saying matter-of-factly, quote, Buck, you know something? I believe I won this race. Baker, however, wouldn't concede. What would emerge later as the reason behind this decision was utterly bizarre. In addition to a trophy and prize money, the winner of the race had been promised a kiss from a local beauty queen, a common custom at NASCAR races of the time. The queen, being a white woman, race officials anticipated the scandal that would be caused if a black man were to kiss her. By their logic, to preserve her honor, a black man would not be allowed to win the race. Oh my so God. when Wendell won, they simply pretended it never happened. That's yeah, that's pretty awful. Dumb. Yeah. That's so dumb. Baker wouldn't stand down, but neither would Scott. While Scott appealed to the officials, the beauty queen awarded Baker the trophy and the kiss. And fans left the track. Only hours later did officials admit their so-called error and awarded Wendell the win. Baker had carried off the trophy. 
The fans were already home. On what should have been Wendell Scott's day of triumph, at the pinnacle of his barrier-breaking NASCAR crusade, he was instead humiliated. Instead of a kiss from beauty queen, he'd been rewarded with a slap in the face. In Scott's typically understated words, they took all the kick out of it. He had made history, only for that history to be denied and erased. Without a trophy or any sort of press coverage of his victory, it was almost as though it never happened. Unbelievably, NASCAR found a way to make things even worse. Word had gotten back to NASCAR management that Scott was upset about not receiving a trophy. So at the next NASCAR event held in Savannah, Georgia on December 29th, the officials handed Scott a trophy. It was a cheap block of wood, nothing like the typical Grand National trophy. To this day, Scott's family is convinced that the makeup award was part of a plan to further humiliate Scott. And it didn't stop there. When Scott got back to the pit area to get ready for the race, he noticed that someone had cut his tire. The cut wasn't deep enough to puncture it. The intent was clearly to damage it just enough to fail during the race. All oh. Scott could do was change the tire and keep driving. The next year, Scott had a glimmer of hope when Ned Jarrett, Ford star driver, met with Lee Iacocca, the vice president of Ford, under Henry Ford II. Iacocca, at 38, was younger than Wendell, but even in his 30s, was already one of the most powerful men in the automotive industry. Jarrett passionately made the case for Iacocca that Ford should sponsor Wendell. Not only was Scott a talented racer who deserved the sponsorship, Jarrett argued that it was also good business. Black people bought cars just like white people, and Wendell could appeal to the market. Iacocca passed over the opportunity. In his eyes, the risk was not worth the reward. Scott was still not allowed to race at Darlington, and by sponsoring him, Ford would have to pick a side between their driver and NASCAR when inevitable conflicts arose. As a consolation, Ford quietly gifted Scott a car, but it was nothing close to what their sponsor drivers were working with. It was a 1960 model that had been redone with a 63 body. Still, for the 64 season, it was the best option that Scott had. He took the car and did his best to get it into top shape. He was now in a weird gray area between being independent and having a sponsor, but without any public support, it definitely felt closer to flying solo. With Ford, Scott had his best year yet, placing 12th in points, with 25 top 10 finishes and 56 races still, Ford declined to sponsor Scott. I mean, uh, that's just like, you know, we talk about, we've talked about Lee Iacocca in like a bunch of our videos, you know, especially up to speed. He's been mentioned in probably 25 videos. Hmm. And, you know, he's like the father of the Mustang and stuff. And like, in no way do we think of him being like part of, you know, this like, as a racist at all, but I think it just points out that it's like you don't have to call someone the N-word to be part of a racist system. You yeah. just have to be part of the racist system. Yeah, he's know? complicit. And yeah. and like I know a lot of people would be like, well, no, he g they gave him a car. And yeah. It's like that's not the point. Like just to be like on an equal level with his white counterparts, he has to be so much better and mm -hmm. so much and it's just bullshit. Well, I mean, I don't think I would consider any of the four of us to be racist, but we do benefit from racism and racist systems that we have. So, um, yeah. Imagine if Ford had sponsored Wendell at that time. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm, it, it probably wouldn't like change history in like a huge way, but you know, maybe there would be some sort of kind of like trickle effect where this enormous American corporation is like, hey, 
Like, we got a black driver now. Like, maybe some Bubba, sort of public opinion. Yeah, maybe Bubba Wallace wouldn't be the only black NASCAR driver in 2020. Yeah, that's a fair point. Outside of NASCAR, there was finally real progress happening in the United States. In 1964 and 65, major Supreme Court decisions dealt blows to the Jim Crow laws that had governed the South. The civil rights movement was daily national news, and just like today, opinions about minority rights and the treatment of black Americans was starting to shift. Even though Wendell had his haters, especially within the power structure of NASCAR, Scott was becoming a crowd favorite at the track. The blue-collar fan base loved an underdog, and underdog was hardly a strong enough word to describe Wendell Scott's story. Many of his fellow drivers also admired Wendell's amazing spirit. NASCAR teams like the Woods Brothers and Holman Moody would often supply Scott parts at a steep discount. In his hometown of Danville, Scott was now a local celebrity. The changes in the country even had their effect in NASCAR. In 1965, Scott was finally allowed to race at Darlington. Unable to keep the pace with the sponsored cars in the fast raceway, he placed in the middle of the pack. Still, it was progress. Behind the scenes, however, things were unchanged. When Scott went to collect the customary travel payment after the race, Bob Colvin, the track's president, turned him away, calling him the N-word. And Scott's only option was to walk away. Yeah, Bob Colvin. Bob Colvin. By 1966, Scott was 45 years old. He'd been racing for 14 years. And if you added his moonshine career, he'd been driving fast for a living for over two decades. His age had not escaped the notice of Ford, who decided that it presented a convenient excuse. In a letter addressed to one of Scott's friends who'd been pushing Ford to sponsor Scott, Ford explained that they decided not to sponsor anyone over 40. Scott's dream of sponsorship was over for good. Despite the setback, 1966 was a peak year for Wendell. He placed sixth in the standings behind only david pearson that's so James. i just want to that's so whack like even nowadays like nolan you pointed out there's drivers racing that are well over 40 yeah yeah uh they got sponsors they got sponsors that's right um so yeah he placed behind david pearson james hilton richard petty henley gray and paul goldsmith he was helped by the fact that Ford had decided to boycott NASCAR because of disputes over car regulations. Scott had performed with his usual consistency, although he didn't win any races, unfortunately. In fact, his 1963 win at Jacksonville would prove to be Scott's only win in the Grand National out of his 495 career starts. But despite his lack of wins, Scott had 147 top 10s, finishing top 10 30% of his starts. That's like pretty consistent. Mm -hmm. That's good. For the rest of the 60s, Scott stayed in the top 10 for overall standings every year. Yeah, this guy really deserved a sponsorship. That's like, that's, that's, yeah. that's good. Yeah, it, like he was doing top 10 for in standings every year with like no budget. Yeah, that's even more impressive. If he had like, like been given a good car, he probably would have been winning a whole lot more. Yeah. By 1970, NASCAR's transition into the modern era was complete. The Talladega Super Speedway had opened in 69, nice, and was the fastest NASCAR track yet with banks of 32 degrees. Races were now being aired on national television, with ABC doubling its annual coverage to 10 races in 1970. 1970 was also the last season when NASCAR would include dirt races on its schedule, Scott's greatest strength. Scott was 50, but he kept racing. 
Racism couldn't make him quit, and neither could age. However, despite his determination, he couldn't quite keep up with the times. In 1972, the Grand National was renamed the Winston Cup Series, with R.J. Reynolds Tobacco now NASCAR's main sponsor. The dirt track races that Scott preferred were relegated to what now is called the Grand National East Division. He would never again be a top-tier driver in the top league. By the end of 1972, it seemed like retirement was the most obvious option for Wendell. Even his most diehard fans would certainly understand if a World War II vet wanted to retire from car racing in his 50s. Instead of retiring, Scott went all in. In the past, he'd remortgaged his house to pay for cars, and he did it again, taking out a $13,000 loan. He borrowed another few thousand from a friend and bought a 1971 Mercury V8 from the Wood Brothers team. It was the best car Scott ever owned. But then he put it up on a lift and he realized it was three cars welded to each other. (laughs) The car cost $22,000. Nowadays, that is $133,000. Scott repainted it red, white, and blue. For his first race in the Mercury, Scott passed over the dirt ovals where he'd made his start. Instead, he'd debut his car at the fastest racetrack on earth at the Winston 500 in Talladega. Ironically, the marshal of that event was George Wallace, the infamous segregation governor who in the 60s has pledged to preserve segregation today, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Wallace had been paralyzed in an assassination attempt a year earlier, so he was being driven in a convertible through the pit area. Wendell Scott reached out and shook Wallace's hand. It's impossible to know what either Wallace or Wendell made of that moment. That's I'm, a pretty pretty cool power move to yeah. be like. Yeah. I would have yanked him out of that convertible. <laughs> well, in qualifying, Wendell's Mercury averaged 163 miles per hour, much slower than the 193 miles per hour pace set by the fastest car. Scott was disappointed, but the Wood Brothers team stepped in before the race, promising to tune the engine to Wendell's satisfaction. When Scott took to the track for the pace laps, his son timed him at 184.5 miles per. He finally had his dream car. But the dream lasted a mere 10 laps. A driver named Ramos Stott blew his engine and ran into the wall, leaking oil all over the track. As cars veered off the pavement, dust was kicked up from the infield, reaching the area of the accident. Scott pulled off the track and stopped. But he wasn't safe, however. A car slammed into his rear, knocking the Mercury sideways. Then a second car smashed straight into Scott's driver's side door, crushing the car and Scott in it. From the pit, Scott's son, Wendell Jr., ran to his father's wreck, not knowing what he would find. Wendell Sr. was alive, but just barely. His left leg was broken in seven places. His ribs and pelvis were broken. He had a horrific gash on his left arm. In the words of Wendell Jr., it was like someone had taken a spray gun and sprayed his whole body in red. He could see a bone amidst the blood. Scott was taken to the hospital and stabilized. He was alive and conscious, and it was a miracle. Meanwhile, back at the track, Bill France surveyed the damage to many wrecked cars. He had a check written out to each driver for thousands of dollars to pay for repairs. Scott was the only driver in the hospital, and France never cut him a check for his car, literally adding insult to injury. Good good Lord, dude. This is in the 70s, by the way. Yeah. In Danville, fans and friends raised money for Wendell's recovery. Richard Petty sent Scott $500, the only NASCAR driver to do so. Wendell would spend the next 32 days in the hospital recovering. 
Bill France finally sent Scott a check for $1,500, along with a photo of Scott shaking hands with George Wallace from Talladega. The note read in its entirety, quote, Thought you would like to have enclosed a picture taken at the race at Talladega on May 6th. Hope you are about well. The bizarre gift and sentiment perfectly sums up France's approach to Scott in the two decades the driver had spent in his league. It was the most hostile version of support that the NASCAR owner could offer. Yeah, it's pretty bizarre. Hey, here's a picture of you with George Wallace. Scott's Mercury was towed up from Alabama back to Danville, Virginia, where it sat rusting in the weeds behind Wendell's shop. Wendell, now deep in debt and still recovering from his injuries, worked full-time in his garage next to the red, white, and blue car that represented his last horrifically brief comeback attempt. As time went on, the car rusted and faded into the thick Georgia foliage. What could have gone through Wendell's mind when he glimpsed the car through the weeds? Reflect, reflecting later on the crash, Scott would say that, quote, It wasn't the worst day. It was the best day I ever had. I could have been killed. Like I always do in times of trouble, I called on the Lord, and he came through just like he always does. Wendell Scott raced three more times in 1973. At some point, heroic bravery blurs into painful denial, and at this point, the people around Scott must have been concerned. Instead of officially announcing his retirement, Scott simply stopped racing. If Wendell Scott's career gives you mixed emotions, that's totally understandable. To summarize, Wendell was without a doubt an American hero. He served his country in World War II. He ran moonshine in Jim Crow, Georgia to give himself and his family a shot at a better life. He raced at the highest level of his sport in a time where every track was hostile territory to a man of his skin color. Without a sponsorship or a professional pit crew, he finished in the top 10 of the Grand National multiple times. In a time when our country is debating statues, here's a man who clearly deserves one. I agree with that. Yeah. In his time, Wendell got none of the recognition he deserved. He was the Rookie of the Year who didn't win Rookie of the Year. He won a race they refused to wave a checkered flag. Instead of a trophy, they gave him a wooden block. Ford declined to take a chance on him. He was turned away from racetracks, gas stations, and restaurants. On days when he could get on the track, other drivers would often force him off anyway. An underdog story requires three parts. The first part is difficult circumstances. Wendell's were countless. The second requirement is the underdog, a hero who can rise to the challenge. Wendell did just that over and over again. The third requirement is that the underdog wins. Even when Wendell did win, NASCAR found a way to take it away from him. His battle was much deeper and more complicated than an underdog story. It was a story of limitless willpower and persistence pitted against an entire culture of racism. We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. In an amazing twist, Wendell's totally un-Hollywood story was made into a very Hollywood production in 1977. The movie was Greased Lightning, starring Richard Pryor as Wendell Scott. Pam Greer played Mary, Wendell's wife. The world of Greased Lightning was nothing like reality. It ended with Wendell winning the Grand National as well as the hearts and minds of those around him. The ultimate irony is that Wendell was promised royalties from the movie, but with typical Hollywood accounting, Warner Brothers recorded the movie as a net financial loss, even though it had performed well in theaters. Scott would receive no profits. 
For the real-life Wendell Scott, even Grease Lightning didn't have a happy ending. As time went on, Scott would finally start to receive the recognition he deserved. In 1972, the Black American Racers Association was formed with Wendell as their honorary chairman in order to promote auto racing in the black community. In 2000, Scott was inducted into the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. And most notably, in 2015, Scott was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Unfortunately, he was not around to be there. Scott died in 1990 from cancer at the age of 69. All Wendell Scott ever wanted was a car and a dirt track to race it on. Simple desires that because of the time and place he was born into became incredibly complicated. The challenges in his path were endless and endlessly unfair. Still, the son of Red Hills, Georgia, kept racing, searching for his place at the table. The road he was headed down was the same one we're on today. Deep down, Wendell Scott knew something we're all still learning. If you want to win, first you have to be equal. There's a story of Wendell Scott. Um, pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, man. I think this is one of my favorite series that we've done on the show so far. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, I'm not very well versed on NASCAR history. I'm like, for the longest time, I mean, I, I, I watch F1 all the time. I love F1, but I haven't really watched a lot of NASCAR. Um, but now I'm watching it more. I'm getting up to speed on all the characters hey. and their backstories and stuff. Hey, that's the show. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, I mean, I'll admit I wasn't aware of Wendell Scott until pretty recently. And I'm really glad that we're telling the story because it's really good. And, uh, yeah. you know, very inspirational. It's crazy to see the parallels of what Bubba's going through today. Like it's nothing has changed at all. Like it's I, NASCAR is like kind of supporting him now, but it's still the same. Yeah, BS yeah. That um, he has to go through. I've, they're definitely making a lot of necessary changes yeah. that should have been done a long time ago. I think, but I. It's super disheartening, but also like inspiring that he had this drive in him. And this like insane willpower, and he seems like he wasn't gonna let anyone get in his way. You know, I think NASCAR is doing a lot of like kind of too little, too late kind of stuff. A lot of like posturing and some gestures, but the fact is that you know Bubba is under this like incredible pressure right now to be the single um black representative of an entire sport you know and like yeah he's the only one who has a black lives matter car he's the only one who's wearing a shirt that says i can't breathe and he's the only one who you know is getting pushed by the rest of the drivers in his car you know the fact that he is the only Black kid who, you know, Jesse Iwuji is a friend of ours and a friend of the channel. He's in the truck series. You know, the fact that there aren't a ton of little black kids looking at race car drivers being like, oh, that's what I want to do is a problem. And I think that's the problem that NASCAR needs to address. Yeah, it's not it's not something that like a Twitter post or you know, like banning, I, it's a good thing that they're banning the Confederate flag. It's like a step in the right direction. It's also 2020. If you presented that opportunity to kids, they're gonna, you're gonna have a new wave of fans. Like there's no, 
it's good business to do this. And I do think that, you know, like we say it all the time, like you have to be a rich kid to race. Um, and like your parents basically have to be in it, into yeah. it, um, where, you know, with a lot of other sports, you don't really need a lot of stuff and you don't need to be, you know, you don't need to grow up around people who are willing to, you know, devote all their time and knowledge to like you pursuing a thing like as a kid. And I really do hope that, you know, with Sims becoming, you know, so accurate and Sim Racing Leagues becoming a thing, I think that is a real opportunity to offer this sport to a lot more people. Yeah, that's a really good point. All the, uh, you know, all the, all the Black Lives Matter protesting um, with all the, all the turmoil that we're going through as a nation right now, I think... You know, it it is scary. I can see why people are nervous and everything, but I think at the end of the road, I feel very optimistic. You know, you see it with a, a lot of like footage being shared on social media of, you know, uh, examples of racism, both systematic and like just like absurd personal level stuff. I think that I think there is a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel here. Um, it's not going to happen without some change, some structural yeah. and systematic change. But I think we can do that. There's no reason that we can't. All right. So that has been our two-parter on Wendell Scott. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please consider uh, giving us a good review on the platform of your choice. It does help us out. And if you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel, uh, it's called Loud Engines by Nolan's House on youtube you can check it out <laughs> it's a great channel no uh we got donut podcasts is where you can find the video version of this podcast if you you know prefer to watch it uh or and our our main channel donut media a very cool mustang just drove by by the way um <laughs> yeah donut media check us out if you haven't already if for some reason you listen to podcasts and don't watch our videos consider you know maybe check them out um we you can find us on social media as well at donut media you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Joe G Weber. Fired up. At James Pumphrey. More power, baby. And myself at Nolan J. Sykes. Um, yeah, it's been a fun one. I don't yeah, know I about don't know fun. fun yeah. yeah. I don't know about fun. It's no, been it an, an, an enlightening one. It was yeah, an awesome good story. story. Really, I mean, really cool, dude. Yeah. Fired up for Wendell. Yeah, fired, fired up for up. Wendell. Alright. Alright. Be kind. I love you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.